Good morning, Christ Church. Let me say a prayer for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this time where we get to draw near to you. I pray that you would speak your goodness and your truth into our lives and our hearts today. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. More than 2,000 years ago, Aristotle asserted that the central purpose of the state is to enable its citizens to lead a good life, one of moderation, virtue, and contemplation. And so for Aristotle, the purpose of politics then was not to set up a framework of rights that is neutral among ends. It was to form good citizens and to cultivate good character. He believed that the highest end of political association is to cultivate the virtue of citizens. So then the purpose of politics, he said, was nothing less than to enable people to develop their distinctive human capacities and virtues to deliberate about the common good, to acquire practical judgment, to share in self-government, and to care for the fate of the community as a whole. He believed moral excellence didn't consist in aggregating pleasures and pains, but in aligning them so you would delight in noble things and take pain in base ones. He believed happiness not as a state of mind, but a way of being, an activity of the soul that was in accordance with virtue, and that moral virtue comes about as a result of habit. So moral virtue is something you learn by doing. We have to develop then those habits that put that into place. So for Aristotle, the primary purpose of the law was to cultivate the habits that lead to good character. Now I find this so interesting because when you're thinking through like philosophy and these big ideas, here we are in 2022 and we don't usually think about politics in this way. They're more a necessary evil, not an essential feature of the good life. We're not looking to politicians to teach us lessons on character and virtue, much less moral excellence. When people get together and talk about politics, it doesn't really cultivate character and virtue. Instead, it seems to bring out the worst in us. You never walk away from a conversation where you're talking about politics or the elections or the midterms that are coming up, feeling more virtuous after that conversation. C.S. Lewis, our friend, said it's easy to think the state has a lot of different objects, military, political, economic, and whatnot. But in a way, things are much simpler than that. The state exists simply to promote and protect the ordinary happiness of human beings in this life. Yet people don't get happy talking about politics. People are yelling at each other and fighting with each other and arguing over what's right and what's wrong and this and that. And there's so much tension and divide that we feel going on right now in our families, in our communities, everywhere we go. And when big elections are coming up like this week, it only feels that tension and that divide that we feel. So what do we do? If, if the purpose of moral virtue is practicing these habits and cultivating the good life and character, how do we navigate the process with so much arguing and yelling and tension and divide? We know it's not how it's supposed to be, yet we feel ourselves getting sucked in every time. Like this time, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to argue. But then we can't help ourselves, and we wade in one more time. How do we move forward when things feel so divided in a healthy way? To help us answer this, we're going to look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I actually love how the message translates some of this. He says, in light of all of this, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up, a prisoner for the master, I want you to get out there and walk, better yet, run. On the road God calls you to travel, I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down, down some path that goes nowhere. Mark that you do it with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily, pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. Here is what Paul's saying here in this section. He's saying, I'm here, I'm a prisoner, but you're not. You're out there and you've got work to do. I want you to take all of the things that Christ has done for you, Christ's been doing in you, and I want you to extend that to other people. You've been called by God. Now you're his son, his daughter. This new identity that you have in him should be reflected in your life and who you are day after day after day. Nothing says more about our faith in Jesus Christ than the person we choose to be on a regular basis. Who we are is what comes out of us in moments of chaos and crisis and stress. It doesn't change us or alter us. It reveals who we truly are. And if we really want to cultivate the values and the morals that Christ has called us to live out, then we live our life with him having an influence in who we are. We aim to live in a way that's pleasing to Jesus Christ. We aim to live in the kind of way that reflects this is who we love, this is who we follow, this is who gets the greatest say in who we are. So we start with this goal. I want to live in a way that's pleasing to Jesus Christ. I want to live in a way that says I know that person knows Christ because of who they are again and again and again. I want my life to reflect that there is an awesome God who loves us and saved us and showed us grace and compassion again and again and again. I love Brene Brown says, grace means all of your mistakes now serve a purpose instead of serving shame. The grace that God has shown us picked us up and gave us a second chance. This new identity, this new name, this new person unites us in who we are following Christ. We're united in this grace that God has shown us, united in the grace that has made all the difference in our lives. And in a world that's filled with division and chaos, which is nothing new, this is how we aim to live. Paul said, live with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with each other in love and unity. These five values are products that we grow in when the grace of Christ has an influence in our life. Christ is working in us as we grow to be more humble, more gentle, more patient, more loving, more united in love. So let's look at these one by one. Humility is the first one. How do we live in a way that's more humble? The idea of humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. <laughs> it's not becoming a doormat and every terrible thing that anybody wants to say. It's just simply spending less time focused on you. And at the core of being humble, you don't see yourself as better than other people. You don't have a need to be more than you already are. 
It's not trying to prove anything to anybody about how great you are or how smart you are or how anything that you are. It's just the freedom to stop trying to be anything you're not or pretending to be what you're not and just accepting your appropriate space in life. I love one professor of psychology said, this is why humility is so needed right now. He said, recent trends in America suggest that by several different metrics, narcissism may be on the rise. Self-aggrandizing and entitlement have poisoned relationships and wreaked havoc in workplaces, sown increasing division in politics and fueled the culture war. He said, we've also forgotten how to productively and politely disagree. It's become increasingly difficult to have civil conversations with people who have different points of view, with many simply surrounding themselves with belief-confirming news and social circles that insulate them from new ideas, simply reinforcing their preferred ways of seeing the world. We've ensconced ourselves in echo chambers, favoring closed-mindedness and validation instead of open-mindedness, curiosity, and free inquiry. We've seen the toll of arrogance in families, neighborhoods, workplaces, and society. How do we push back when there's division and chaos? Well, the first place we start with is with us. Where my life has been marked by arrogance and pride, I need to start practicing humility. And if humility is seeing myself in the appropriate space, the right size, not too big, not too small, it requires awareness and openness and empathy. I have to be aware, where is my pride squashing people around me? Where am I acting in the kind of way that's closed-minded and not open to new thinking and new ideas? Where is empathy allowing me to see the humanity in people, not just the things that we disagree over, but the people that they are? I love Timothy Keller says, on the cross, Christ wins through losing. He triumphs through defeat. He achieves power through weakness and service, and he comes to wealth via giving all away. So many times we approach fights as a win at all costs. I'm right, you're wrong. I have to win. Yet Christ, the one we follow, won through losing. He triumphed through defeat. He found power in weakness and service, and he gave everything away. Yet it was the right of Jesus Christ to dwell forever in all his glory, and he voluntarily surrendered that right for us. He humbled himself on our behalf. If Christ could humble himself to that degree, how am I too good to start practicing humility in my life today? How could I ever think that it would cost me more to be humble to the people in my life than it cost Jesus Christ to practice humility on my behalf? If my goal is to grow in character and virtue and value, to be more like Christ, I have to find room in my heart, in my mind, and in my actions to focus on other people, to serve other people, to make sacrifices on the behalf of others and putting other people first. Instead of choosing arrogance, instead of pride, instead of my feelings are more important than anything else, Humility says, yes, you're here, but there are other people around you too. Be aware of how this affects them. Be aware of what influence this has. It's not about fighting to prove how right you are, but it's about showing up with grace and humility again and again and again. And then the second practice, the second quality that Paul gives us is this idea of being gentle. Gentleness is really at its core, it's restrained strength. 
So if you've ever held a baby before, they're so small and they're so delicate, you feel the urge, the impulse to be gentle with them, right? You don't rough around like you would with a different age person. You hold them gently and you touch them gently and you speak in a tempered, gentle tone with them. You use a soft hand and you know how small they are. You're willing to temper your strength and your voice to see to the needs of the baby. And that same idea of gentleness is an attitude that shows up in how we treat other people. Now, obviously, everybody's not babies around us, and we don't have to treat them like babies, but we can temper our approach to other people. Just because I get frustrated doesn't mean I have to take that frustration out on somebody else. Just because I feel grouchy doesn't mean my grouchiness gets to be poured out. I can temper my attitude for the good of other people. I can treat the people in my life with gentleness and use kindness instead of anger. Think about it. You might have the best response in the world. Somebody says something, you totally are on different opposing sides, you disagree with them, you have this witty, cutting reply that's gonna like slice through and put them in their place. But in the end, what does that prove? You might be right, but you might hurt the relationship and somebody that matters to you just by using that cutting reply. How instead could you use a gentle approach towards people? Think about Christ's gentleness towards us. He's God. <laughs> all power, all authority, everything belongs to him. And yet he came into the world as a human being, starting out as a baby. And he treated us with gentleness. He, he didn't raise an invading army and overthrow the empire. He died on a cross, giving his life away that we might know him, that we might experience firsthand love and grace and the difference that it makes. Christ tempered his power and strength for us. And every time we gentle our approach towards the people in our life, we show the grace of Jesus Christ in our world. Look, we might not get credit for it. They might not know the thing that we were going to say and how much it cost us not to say the thing. That's okay. It's not us proving anything to anybody else. It's us living up to the name of Christ that we've been called to follow and live in. He sees it all, and none of it's wasted. The world doesn't need more anger and violence. It's drowning in it. It doesn't need more hate and more yelling. It needs us to choose to respond in gentle ways. We de-escalate life, situations, fights, arguments, chaos, tension, by just showing up with a gentle approach and a gentle word. So we have humility, we have gentleness, and then we have patience. I feel like patience is one of these ideas that is so good in theory, but is so hard in practice. I love, there is a word for patience, it's called forbearance, and it's long-suffering, endurance, constancy, steadfastness, perseverance, slowness in avenging wrongs. It's the quality of somebody who's patient and able to deal with a difficult person or situation without becoming angry. Doesn't that sound amazing? Like, I wish I could deal with every difficult situation without becoming angry. I'd like myself a whole lot better. But certain situations, certain people seem to, like, push the exact wrong button that calls out the worst in us. But look at how powerful this is. In our understanding of God, he is eternally patient with us. 
He's not quick to lose his temper. He's not quick to get upset. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He has been patient towards humanity literally for all of time. And it creates a new standard of patience that we work towards. Yes, there's always going to be difficult people. We can't change that fact. There's always going to be difficult situations that pop up in life. That is a reality of the messy world that we live in. I can't control the chaos of other people, but I can control myself. I can control how I deal with all of this without losing my temper. My temper is my responsibility and nobody else's. My anger is my issue, no matter how frustrating somebody else is. And losing our temper, it takes very, very little work and costs us nothing. But it is so much harder to put the work in to be patient when we're grouchy and frustrated. But I promise you this right now, the practice of patience will make the biggest impact for good in the people around you. Nobody wants to be yelled at. Nobody wants to have somebody's temper bubble over and explode all over them. When people expect you to get angry and you show up with patience, when you don't yell, when you don't lose your temper, it has an effect for good. If not for the patience of God, none of us experience the loving goodness, forgiveness, and hope. And our anger helps nobody. Our anger doesn't make anybody better. Our temper never heals anything. It only fractures relationships and makes the divide greater. Instead, patience makes a huge difference, and that we have control over. But it's a practice. It doesn't come naturally to us. We have to try and try and try. We have to say, I'm going to outpatient this. I can be patient in this situation. When we lose our temper, we apologize. I'm sorry. I don't want to respond that way. I wish I wouldn't have. And then we try again and again and again. Because the next idea is bearing with one another in love. And look, we can't bear with each other when we don't work on the activity of patience. Because to bear with each other in love is to hold one another up, to sustain each other, endure its affection and goodwill and benevolence. We're literally in love, holding each other up through life. We're enduring life together. We're showing goodness to each other through the hardships of life. This is so powerful because when Christ taught his disciples how to live for him and how people were going to know that they spent time with him and had been around him, he said, by how you love one another. Christ shows us how to love by how he loves us. Look, when I was my most unlovable, Christ died for me. When I was a mess and a jerk, Christ gave his life that I might have a hope and a future. It's because Christ extended love towards us that we have any hope and capability of being a better person. It's because of love that we have hope for the future. And if we want the world to know anything about the goodness of God, it shows up in how we love each other. People know how good Christ is by people who say they follow him showing up and practicing goodness and love. We tell the world what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, not by saying all of the right things. We can say the right things and sing the right songs and quote the right verses at the right time, 
But if how I treat people does not reflect the grace and love of Jesus Christ, then the world doesn't get to see how awesome and good he is. Love is literally what holds all of these things together. The love of Christ influencing our life from good, allowing us to walk away from the anger and the shame and the regret and the mess of our life and focusing instead on humility and gentleness and patience. Love is being unselfish in our treatment of others. Love is saying it's not all about me. The world isn't reflecting around me. It's not how we feel. It's how we choose to act day after day after day. And our faith for Jesus Christ expresses itself in how we love one another. Love is the action in how we treat the people in our lives. And how we live should be driven by the love of Jesus Christ. We should be holding each other up, not looking for ways to tear one another down. We should be looking for ways to work together and come together, not against each other. We should be looking for the best in each other instead of trying to find the worst. It means we stick it out with each other. We don't give up on each other. We don't wash our hands of each other. But we bear life with one another in love. And Paul says when we practice these, it brings us to this idea of unity, this oneness, this idea of unity is so powerful because yes there are so many things that are different about us there are so many things that we don't have in common but they're minuscule compared to what we do have in common we are united by the common love of jesus christ we're united by a common goal to grow in christ and to be more his guy and his girl the church is a reflection of who we are growing up in Jesus Christ. We're united in our love for him, our commitment to grow up in him, working side by side, united in our way of saying God is good and we just want to be in the world reflecting his goodness. It's our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites us. It's our faith in the saving work of who Christ is that brings us together. And for this unity to exist, we have to work together towards it. Because unity puts us together, it bonds us together in a spirit of peace. The picture here is like ligaments that are running through the whole body, holding it together. This bond of peace that runs through all of us, it's powerful. Because we always think about peace in the negative, right? Like the absence of war, the absence of conflict. When everybody's not fighting and at each other's throat, then we'll finally have peace. There's no trouble, there's no hostility. But the ancient idea, especially from the Hebrew, actually means wholeness and completeness and joyful, flourishing life. Christ says, I want you to live a life that is whole and complete, that's flourishing and marked by joy, woven together in all that you are and all that you do. It doesn't say it's going to be conflict-free or problem-free or trouble-free, but this bond of peace unites us in all that we do. Because when we show up and choose gentleness and humility and patience and bearing with each other in love, that grace that Christ has shown us becomes evident in everything we do. Every time we pick one of these ideas, we're reflecting who God is and what he means to us. And then Paul says, he uses this word one seven times in just the next few verses. Look at how important he says this is. One God, one faith, one baptism, one body, 
one spirit, one hope, one Lord. We aren't multiple people fighting for different things. We're one God, one faith, one baptism, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. The unity of the church is grounded in the saving work of Jesus Christ. There's one God that we follow. There's one spirit that has an influence in our life and one Lord who gave his life that we might have a hope and a new life in him. And that's who we are supposed to be as followers of Jesus Christ. And see, it's not marked by race or gender or background or social status. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for everybody. And as followers of Christ, we're united in the fact that we're all looking to the very same person to show us how does life work. How am I going to be this guy, this girl? We're all looking to Christ to say, this is how I'm going to do my life. We were never supposed to be known for what we disagree about or what we fight about or what we claim to hate. We're supposed to be known for the goodness, the love of Jesus Christ flowing out of us. The same Christ who died to save your life did for me. The same Christ who found me and redeemed me and changed my life is the same Christ who shows up in the lives of others to do that very same thing. When we are focused on Christ, when we're looking to him, thinking about who he is and what he's done, that unites us greater than anything else. In Christ, we are one, one body. We have different gifts and different strengths and different backgrounds and different life experience. We come from all these different corners, but we come together united in Jesus Christ. What brings us together is that the same Christ who knows you and loves you loves us too. We aren't supposed to be out yelling and fighting with everybody. We're not supposed to be um, arguing about this or that. We're supposed to be living out the grace that God has shown us through humility and gentleness and patience and love, binding together in unity with peace. Andy Stanley wrote an incredible book called Not In It to Win It, and he talks about all of these ideas and goes into more depth. But he says, uncertainty doesn't alter our value system, it exposes it. What's really most important rises to the surface. Look, the world might be a crazy place right now. It was crazy 2,000 years ago, it's crazy now, it'll be crazy in the future. Craziness in the world doesn't alter who we are, it just shows who we are. Who we are comes out of us in moments of chaos and crisis. It shows here's what we value the most. And I love he said this, difference is inevitable, but division is a choice. Yes, we are different. That's great. That's lovely. We've never been called to be cookie-cutter versions of one another, but that does not mean we have to live in a world of division. Unity is most important. Who we are in Christ determines everything else. And for unity to happen, he says you have to fight for it. You have to forgive for it. You have to serve for it. Every one of us, if we're going to choose to live in a united way because we love God and we follow him, that has to be a priority in our life, which means there are things we have to forgive and let go. There are places we got to show up and serve and just give the best of ourselves away because unity doesn't happen on its own. It has to be chosen. It has to be worked for. And here's what I want us to be. I want us to be the church that chooses unity instead of division. We could fight about everything, but we don't need to. 
because we're not trying to prove ourselves to anybody. We're just the guys and the girls that God has called us to be, living our best lives for him. And we're going to show up in the chaos, in the division, in the fighting, in all of the things that exist. And we're going to show humility and gentleness and patience. We're going to hold each other up in love, and we're going to work with the goal of being united because that who's Christ, who is, that is who Christ has called us to be. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us. I recognize that these ideas are hard and they don't always come easy, but I'm asking for your help. I pray, Father, that we would not be the people out shouting and yelling and fighting with one another, but we would be the men and women working towards unity through humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Bind us together in peace, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.